2 Samuel chapter 6, and I want to just keep your finger there, and I'm going to back up a little bit to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 20, 26. We talked about chapter 26 last week, and it feels like a month ago we talked about this because so much has transpired for us. We've been packing and moving, and it's been amazing. It's great. Um, and we also want to be praying for Aggie because they got to move, right? they got to find a place. and Yeah. So keep it Aggie in prayer. And also we want to welcome Tara. Tara's first time here. Uh, she's here and she's a guest of Pastor Tony and Anne Marie. So thanks for coming and hope to see more of you. Um, chapter 26. Do you remember, who remembers what we talked about last week? David's, what? David's integrity, right? And David's integrity was displayed because God gave him an opportunity to kill his enemy, right? Where was David at the time? He was in a cave with Saul. Saul just comes stumbling in. And David, what does he do? He takes a piece off of Saul's kingly garment without Saul even knowing it. Saul leaves the cave and David comes out behind him and says, look what I have. I didn't kill you. May God honor my integrity. Saul is broken by that. And he is just touched and he's just amazed uh, at David's integrity and humility. And we see that Saul no longer, in uh, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, no longer uh, is he pursuing David. And so I'm just going to summarize the next couple chapters very quickly to get us up to speed to where we are in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Chapter 27, Saul leaves David. And verse chapter 28, Saul is really in spiritual trouble because Saul is no longer hearing from God. God is not speaking to Saul anymore. And this sounds very extreme, but it, it is part of the process of chastisement on Saul's life. Now, I personally believe that Saul, even though he was a carnal king, he was a king that just was, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, just rebellious against God uh, in his um, treatment of the command that God had given him, uh, and God's kingdom departed from Saul. I believe that Saul was, in that, even in that situation, was a was a man that believed in God and that was saved. And this is a picture of a, a believer who is born again, who is saved, but he gets into trouble because he's living in his own natural perception of things and he's living in personal opinion. And so uh, Saul begins to be chastised by God, first in his emotions, because chastisement always begins in our emotions. First, it, The first step is actually the word rebukes us. The second step is, our, our emotions begin to be in a chronic state of just anger and bitterness and uh, troubled. We're just troubled in our emotions and we can't relax and um, we begin to experience emotional problems. Saul continues down this road of a downward spiral and he, at this point, is, he is basically rebuked by David's integrity. Have you ever met someone who has integrity and that just challenges the daylights out of you. It, it, uh, we've all been there and I have myself just been in a place where you just see a very simple godly person 
and without them even saying <clears throat> anything to you, <clears throat> you're just so challenged by their life. And so Saul leaves David, <clears throat> but he's not hearing from God anymore because Saul is not interested in really hearing from God. And Saul has really grieved the Holy Spirit. And when the believer grieves the Holy Spirit in his life, he's no longer hearing the voice of God. Um, so David, I mean, so Saul in chapter 28 decides to go to a witch. He is desperate. <clears throat> he wants to go and meet a witch and have this witch conjure up Samuel from the grave. Samuel has died. And so he, he disguises himself with his men. They go see this witch. The witch um, hesitantly does this because it's illegal at the time in, in Israel and in Judah by Saul's command. And so he, he, he meets with her and she conjures up what is, uh, can be conceived as Samuel. Now there's a big question here uh, that people have with this historical account because I love the life of David. Lots of controversial things are happening that cause a lot of questions. But the Bible is so practical and it's so realistic and it's so honest that it deals with it without any, without any complications. And so we see here, and I believe that what was conjured up was not Samuel, even though what Samuel says to Saul is exactly what Samuel said before while Samuel was alive. I believe that this was a, a demonic counterfeit of someone. Demons and Satan can counterfeit um, things of God, it can counterfeit men of God, it can counterfeit the work of God without the cross. But the problem with that is that there's never lasting effects. Um, what God does in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 is forever. What God does in your life, it's forever. It's forever. And there's nothing that can undo the work of God. We can, be, we can choose to be not recipients of that, but what the devil does in this world, and you'll notice it, if you look at human history, you'll see a work of the devil in the world, but it doesn't continue. For example, communism is a good example. It, it comes to an end. Everything that the devil tries to do to bring into the world is not lasting. And that's why we will see at the end of the seven-year tribulation, when the Antichrist is on the earth doing what he's doing, it's going to come to an end. And the world's going to rebel against him. Because there can be no perfect government without Jesus Christ. And so Samuel, as Saul, has this witch conjure up Samuel. And basically, <clears throat> what Samuel says here, what is presumed to be Samuel, is basically the same words that we read Samuel say to Saul earlier in chapter 15 and later on when Samuel tells Saul, the kingdom has departed from you. And so I hope that's clear to us. Christians should never, of course, go to witches or never ever mess around with Ouija boards or any kind of tarot cards. We should never get involved with that. As a matter of fact, anything that is in the demonic world or that is these days uh, considered curious, we should never get involved with that because that it impacts us because we are exposing ourselves to demonic things that can have effect on people. And so if that's ever happened in our lives, we can set it aside and we can say, God, wash me from that. I want to continue in your righteous path and in your word. And God cleanses us from that. And as we continue in truth, God cleanses us from that. 
grace, and I just want to make another point here, grace will cleanse us from all, grace and the forgiveness and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, correct? Jesus died on the cross for sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he was not dying for evil or for the devil. He was dying, he was dying for you and I and for sin and for weakness. What I mean by that is, is that the, if someone has ever had in their past or in their family, has, in their family history, any kind of, um, any kind of uh, interaction with the occult or demonic activity, what they need to do is they need, we need to get into the Word and let the Word of God begin to cleanse us and to direct us. Jesus didn't die for evil. It's the Word of God that deals with the evil. And so Saul was rejecting evil. I'm sorry, but Saul was rejecting the Word of God, and, and therefore he was in a system of evil. I know I'm talking fast about this, but I want to get to our text here. So um, if you have any questions about that, we can talk about it later. But um, remember, 1 John chapter 4, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, I've had people tell me that they've said, well, I've had my grandparents or my parents or family members or friends put a curse on me. Well, as a believer, that has no power over us. For example, and, and you never have to worry about that because the devil functions through fear and through fear we become paralyzed to who we are in Christ and we don't live in that and then we begin to live under the effects of that. For example, I was living in Ukraine as a missionary, and uh, we were doing outreach on the street one time, and there was this lady that came up to us, young lady, and she goes, who are you people? And I said, well, we're Christians, we're just here evangelizing, we're just sharing the good news of Christ, that you can be born again and have peace in your life, forgiveness of sins. And she goes, you people are different. And she said, um, my power doesn't work on you people. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, Later on, we found out that she was a practicing witch, and she was doing all that stuff. And, and I said, well, yeah, of course it doesn't, because we're born again. We have the power of the king in our life. And I just had so much boldness. And she was so confounded. And actually, then she got saved. And then she came into our church and became our translator in our church. And that was just a miracle of God. Because the power of God, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And, you know, Halloween is coming up, and all these spooky things come out, and we just have to remember that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the system, that is in the world. And so Saul here, even though he errs in a very great way consulting a witch, what does God do with that? God takes it, turns the whole thing around, and presents truth to Saul. Saul gets the truth. Saul, kingdom has departed from you, and now it's, it is now on David, who will become king. And instead of Saul understanding, just totally surrendering to God and repenting, he continues in his way. And now we see that Saul nears the end of his, nears the end of his uh, kingship. And in chapter 29, the Philistines decide to march against Israel. And all the kings and the princes want to march against Israel. Chapter 30, there's a pause in the scene, and we see David with his men. Uh, they lose everything at Ziklag. David encourages himself in the Lord and recovers everything. 
And that's a beautiful chapter to read if you ever wanted to get encouraged. Uh, but we don't have time to go into it today. And then chapter 31, Saul and Jonathan in battle are killed. They are killed. Actually, Saul takes his life and Jonathan is killed in battle. Because Saul sees the way the battle is going. And in the ultimate expression of pride, he takes his own life. And another interesting question here is, what does God think about suicide? Suicide is not God's will. It is absolutely not God's will at all. And we all know people, or maybe most of us know people, that have ended their life early. But that is the ultimate expression of self um, pride because a person thinks that at that moment of great desperation that they have the power to take their own life and um, it is never God's will for suicide and we whenever those thoughts come into a person's mind immediately we need to take we need to put those aside and we need to go and get help and say you know something I don't know what the value of my life is and start to get help and understand that some medication can actually cause those kind of thoughts. And we need to also see our doctors to make sure that um, uh, if we are taking medication that causes us to think suicidal thoughts, we need to see our doctors and tell them that. And um, because that's not, that's, that can be a chemical thing that causes those kind of thoughts. But suicide here, we see, we see the ultimate sad end of a, of a backsliding believer's life ends in chapter 31. Saul uh, ends his own life. And chapter, and then that's how the book of 1 Samuel ends. Chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, we see just an amazing eulogy of Saul and David. Now this is very important because we discover at the end of chapter, of, of chapter 31, of second of first Samuel and the beginning of second Samuel chapter one, we see God's perspective on Saul. And this is really amazing because when David found out that Saul had died, he actually has the man that did not spare Saul's life, that had the power to spare Saul's life, he actually has that man executed. David respected Saul's anointing, even though he was a carnal king respected that so much that when he found out that there was a man who was an Amalekite, by the way, Israel's old enemy, when he finds out that the man actually helped Saul die, um, David had him executed. That was the level of David's love and respect for the anointing of God. And this brings us to this point today that I want to talk about is David's respect for the anointing of God had a direct impact on his integrity. And we're going to skip a few chapters here. We're going to go to chapter 6 and look at this together. David, from chapter 1 through chapter 5, goes through a series of events. Chapter 2, David becomes king over Judah, 2 Samuel chapter 2. And he becomes king over Judah. He's anointed king. There's a bit of a scuffle of who would be king of Saul's family. Nobody follows this guy who stands up and says, I'm part of Saul's family. I'm the rightful heir. Nobody follows him. Everybody starts following David because they see David's got the anointing of God and he's, God's hand is on him. And you know something? Leadership is not necessarily 
a person that can, well, the official translation or official definition of leadership is, and this is what we've heard it said in many circles, leadership is the ability to get people to do something that they normally would not do themselves. But leadership goes way beyond that. Leadership happens when a person, a man or a woman, is anointed by God in their ministry or in their work, whether however small it is or however great it is, people see that anointing and they're going to follow that because they can see the hand of God, the, the, they can hear the voice of God in that person's anointing. And people will follow that. And people start following David because he's anointed king. Chapter 5, he becomes king of the second part of, of Israel, because Israel at that time was divided. David becomes king over Judah and Israel. Now David is in a place where he's rightful king, and this is the beginning of a 40-year reign of, of David's kingship. And I spent a few minutes there and just kind of raced through a survey there of, of what happened in David's life. Now David is king, and something very important happens, and this is the point of the message here. Let's read this um, in chapter 6. And David again gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God. Now Baal, B-A-A-L, is the name of the pagan god at that time over that region of Judah. And so the Ark of the Lord, which if you remember correctly, was a box that had been, a special box that had been made under the instruction of Moses to be a memorial of God's faithfulness and God's work in Israel's history. Do you remember that? David, what he does is, is he's going to bring the Ark back into Jerusalem. Now the Ark of the Covenant was a, was a golden uh, container that had inside of it several very important objects in Israel's history. Number one, there was the, uh, the table, the tablets of stone, the, the, the Law of Moses that had been broken on the Mount Sinai. They were in there. There was Aaron's rod which budded supernaturally to prove that God's um, authority was with, the, the, was with Aaron's um, priesthood. Uh, there was manna, which was this bread-like substance that fed the Israelites while they were in the desert. That was all in there. It was sealed. Nobody could look inside. And on top of that was this golden type of platform that two cherubim were looking at. And this was where the blood of the sacrifice was put once a year for all the whole nation of Israel. And so this was a very, very sacred object. It was to be carried on poles. Uh, it was not to be touched, but it was to be carried on wooden poles on the shoulders of men. And we've all seen pictures of it. And these poles, and this is going to make sense in a second, these poles were attached to the... Ark of the Covenant with golden rings. And so the only contact that was between the Ark and people was wooden, was these poles and golden rings. And so there's no physical contact with this 
Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on it. And so this is what David wants to get. He wants to get this back into uh, his possession because for about 20 years it's not been in the possession of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with his people. It represented that God is with us. It represented the power of God was with them. And wherever the Ark went as Joshua was taking over that promised land, the ark, wherever the ark would be, would be God's power and God's anointing and God's work and God's faithfulness. This ark really is a symbol of who in the New Testament? Jesus Christ, correct? The presence of God among his people, the blessing of God, the the whole thing was made of wood, but on the outside of it was made with gold, was overlain with gold. Wood speaks of humanity, Jesus' humanity that frail and that could be broken like he was broken on the cross. But outside of it was, was all overlaid with gold that speaks of his divinity, his deity. 100% God and 100% man. This ark represented Jesus Christ in the midst of his people. And so David understood that as an as a Old Testament grace believer. He understood that we want to have God's blessing in our midst because where the ark was at that time, it was blessing the family and the people that it was there. That they, had, they were experiencing the blessing of the Lord. And so David calls to have this ark brought up and it says here in verse 2, David arose, went with all the people that were with him in Baal Judah to bring up thence the ark of God whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwells between the cherubims. And they set forth the ark upon a new cart. Get that. They put it on a cart with wheels, a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And what, which that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And so what they have is, if you can picture this with me, they are going to get this ark, which is like the, the amazing presence of God, this thing that represented God was with Israel, and David wanted that. And so they put it on a brand new cart, the best cart that they could find. They put it on a cart. They put... They put um, animals in the front to, to pull the cart, and we got two men that are driving the cart. That is not the way that the ark was to be carried. We read in the book of Numbers that the ark was not to be carried on an ark, but it was to be carried on the, on the shoulders of men. What does this speak of here to us today? It speaks of that God's presence and God's blessing and God's anointing today among his people cannot be driven in some mechanized system. And God does not want to be pulled around by the beasts of people's egos and uh, the old sin nature in the flesh. God desires to dwell with his presence and his blessing on the shoulders of you and I, his people. God desires to dwell on our shoulders, to be anointing and to be blessing and to be present in our life. But David did not understand this aspect of the ark, and that's because he was ignorant of the way the Levites had been instructed. And so they bring it out of the house of Abinadab, in verse 4, which was at Gibeah, 
accompanying the ark of God, and Ehiel went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel, in verse 5, played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir, wood, tar, even on harps, psalteries, timbrels, cornets, and on cymbals. And they came to Nathan's threshing floor. Threshing floors seem to be, in the history of David, in the history of Israel, it seemed to be places of God's judgment where God would, God would deal with things. And so what we have here is we have the ark being pulled by these animals. Everybody is making this amazing music with the most finest instruments. One man is walking before, and then you have Uzzah, which is walking beside the ark. And there's a lot of joy, and there's a lot of excitement. And it was just amazing. There was a lot of happiness. And when they came to the threshing floor in verse 6, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of the of God and took hold of it for the oxen shook it and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his error and he died by the ark of God wow what a strange event here everybody is rejoicing that the ark of the Lord is coming back into David's presence into the midst of Israel what an amazing time to party and to enjoy and great excitement and it's on a brand new cart and it's being driven but there's a problem. It begins the whole, the whole cart and the, the, the whole way it's being carried begins to tip. And it was, actually, it was actually severe enough that Uzzah felt that the ark, the most powerful object that Israel had in, in its presence at that, that, that time, could not take care of itself and would actually fall over. And this really speaks a lot to us. I want to use a word here that we have heard in the past, familiarity. Do you know what that means? To become familiar with something. And there's a lot of good uses for that word, like when we're driving our car, we become familiar with the road, and that's a good thing. When we're cooking, we become familiar that the, the, uh, the oven can actually be very hot, and we, won't, we don't want to touch it. But familiarity amongst the people of God and in the work of God, and when we look at our own personal lives, familiarity can be very dangerous. Familiarity with, with our husband, our wife, with our family, with what we do in the ministry or what we do unto the Lord. Familiarity with preaching or sharing the gospel. Whatever we do, familiarity is what Uzzah had before he touched the ark. Uzzah was looking at the ark as something that could not take care of itself, something that could not uh, be under the power of its own protection. Uzzah looked at the great symbol of the presence of God in the midst of his people as something that needed to be controlled, something that needed to be helped, something that needed to be steadied. How many times have we seen great works of God or even small works of God in our lives become a little unstable because of circumstances? And we see people with their... Hand, their human hands of criticism and uh, personal opinions and gossip, and this is what I think should happen. Oh, watch out. we got to steady the work of God here so God doesn't tip over off of his throne. And God makes a very clear point here that Uzzah, in his familiarity, immediately experiences spiritual death. You know, when we become familiar with the plan of God in our life, when we become familiar with the Ark of the Covenant or God's presence in our midst, which is Jesus Christ, then we experience spiritual death. If I get familiar with my, with my mate or with 
the awesome church of God or other people in the church, when I become familiar with them because of much exposure and sometimes seeing people's flesh and seeing people fail sometimes in front of us, it's easy for us to look at them in that perspective and to look at them without the Lord being between us and them. What was the great phrase that we see often David say? He said it to David, he said it to Jonathan, and he also said it to Saul. What was that phrase? May the Lord be between me and thee, or may the Lord judge between me and thee. David always understood that between him and his kingdom, him and his throne, him and his people, him and his family, he understood that the Lord was there. And so between the ark... <laughs> And David was the Lord. And there was that holy respect. There was that holy honor. And there was not that familiarity that Uzzah had. And the point that I'm making here is, is that it's a very joyful event. And then something very tragic and upsetting happens. Somebody dies. It's like, imagine a big party with lots of music and even worship and like, Everybody's praising the Lord and worshiping God, and then someone dies like Uzzah, because Uzzah dies because of his familiarity with the Ark of the Lord. A very simple point I want us to rem remember this morning as we, you know, when we leave, if there's only one thing that you can remember from this, is that familiarity with the work of God in your life or in the lives of other people always ends with spiritual death. We it ends in a lack of understanding of what God is doing. It ends with, uh, a, with our joy being stolen. It ends with uh, a lack of a blessing. And I just think that the fear of the Lord, when we think, just think of how amazing your life is. We were talking with the other day with someone. We are just saying, look at your life. It's so amazing. Isn't it like where God brought us from? I mean, before we were just in the miry clay, weren't we? We were in a pit. How many, of, can you re how many of you can remember the pit that God took you out of? I mean, I can. We don't want to think about that too long, but think about where God took you and where God has brought you today. There's a guy in Ukraine, and I talk about him sometimes, and he knows that I talk about him, but his life just blesses me so much. He came to our church as just a... He came to our church um, from that part of Ukraine that's now in war. He was a emaciated drug addict, and he was just at the end. And he came to our church and just started making decisions with God and just put God first and understood that there was the ark of the presence or the presence of God was in his life. Jesus Christ was in his life. And he began to respect that, and he began to understand that, and he began to receive grace and to grow in grace and make great decisions. And he began to grow, and guess what happened? God began to bless him. And then God gave him a wife, and then kids, like five kids. And, and, like, he just, and now he's, he's got a business. And, you know, and he's a very blessed man. When you see him, if you, if you guys ever can make it to Ukraine with me, it would be awesome. It would be life-changing. You'd meet this guy. And he's not a pastor, and he's not a, he's not a preacher or anything like that. He's just, a, he's, just a, he's just an amazing guy in the church. And every time I see him, I just say, God has blessed you so much because you've just honored God with your life. And I just want to say that, that if you and I can look at our lives 
and detect the presence of God and detect the blessing of God, something's going to change. We're going to see the anointing of God on our lives that maybe we did not experience before. What happens here with David? David is dumbfounded. All the music ends. Everybody's it's real awkward. Everybody's just like, oh, wow, what just happened? This was supposed to be a great event, and God killed somebody. And so everybody kind of just goes back to their corners and just kind of thinks. David gets into the scriptures and sees that, oh, we were not handling the sacredness, the sacred thing of God properly. That there's not supposed to be human contact and human opinion and criticism and there's not supposed to be human perception of what's going on it's supposed to be that we are trusting God for his work and his ministry and his blessing that God is in control and not me and not us and so David understands and so what he does is he goes back he, he does it the way in the book of Numbers and, and the book of Exodus the way it was supposed to be handled the ark and then as he goes I believe it's um, every um, uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 13, they go get the ark, and, and now at every six paces, they stop and they have a, a, just a mass of, of sacrifices to the Lord. Now there's just the other extreme of just ultimate respect and joy and love. And um, as they were going, in verse 13, that they bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces. He sacrificed oxen and fatlings. David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. It's amazing. That's an amazing picture right there. David is dancing before the Lord. And I've seen that happen. I've been overseas where, you know, it, was, it, wasn't, the, it wasn't the contrived fake thing that we sometimes can see on television or whatever, where people are dancing uh, for the Lord. But it was just, this, David had so much joy, he was just dancing. And he had a linen ephod. Why is that important? Because only the priests could wear something like that. What is David, the king, not the priest, king, doing with an ephod? Again, another picture of the New Testament believer that we are kings and priests with the Lord. And we have this ephod, this light linen garment that doesn't cause sweat. And it speaks of the light burden and the joy that we have when we understand that God is in our midst. And that when we quiet ourselves and are humble ourselves and uh, exercise ourselves that in the fear of the Lord and think that God is in the midst of my life, what an amazing thing that is. It's like we just want to get on our knees and just be very quiet before God and just say, God, just forgive me for all of my handling the ark and all of my noise psychic noise in my soul and all of my complaining and and all of my opinions about things and you know when churches go through trouble and we're not in that we're not at that place and I'm not saying this but I'm just saying that when churches go through trouble the best thing to do is for everyone to get on their knees and just to be just to be quiet before the Lord and the fear of the Lord and hopefully the staff would do that, the church would do that, and people that are spiritually minded would do that. At that point, God can speak, and things become very sacred. And I, I have a sense in my life of just great sacredness. I'm not making that happen, but I have a great sense in my personal life. Everything is sacred to me. You are sacred. Everyone in this room is very sacred to me. 
I don't look at you guys in a familiar way. Uh, I know some pastors could really struggle with people seeing their failures and, and seeing his own failures even more. That could become a problem with some pastors that they begin to preach messages at people's problems instead of preaching Christ, right? And um, a pastor could become familiar with his people and start to beat them up and say, look, you people are not good enough. What's going on? And That serves you right that that happened to you. No, that's familiarity, and the end of that is death for everybody, isn't it? That's the spirit of Uzzah. But sacredness means that we look at people and we say, that is a blood-bought, purchased person that belongs to Christ. And if I put my little fleshly, grubby hands on their life and my own opinion about what they should do, I'm in trouble. I have to step back and just pray and say, God, what do you want to do in people's lives? I have to do that with my family. I have to do that with my friends. I have to do that with people that are constantly struggling. Because who knows? It could be me the next. Could be me. Could be me tomorrow. You know, because we're all sinners saved by grace. And so I want to finish this with this: is that we will experience the anointing and the blessing of God in our life to the measure that we respect and fear the presence of the Lord, and 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 understand his anointing and, and the great thing he's doing in our life. It's amazing that you are here. I mean, we are, by the grace of God, we're here. But it's amazing you're here. And it's amazing what God is doing in your lives. And I don't know all the details, but there's a great work of God happening in your personal life. It's amazing. And in my life, too. And, 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 and at any moment where I become familiar with that work of grace and that work of truth, I'm going to enter into spiritual death about it, and I'm not going to be experiencing the joy and the life of it. And I think it's very healthy for us to learn how to get very quiet before the Lord and say, and just worship the Lord and just and, and understand that the sacrifices that David was doing every six paces was, was the finished work, that Jesus died. And again, that number six speaks of man. So every action of man ended with a sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? That everything that these men were doing, these frail men, ended and began with a sacrifice. And that's how we live, is that we understand that Jesus was sacrificed for us. He was our lamb, and he was our, he was our, um, he was our sin offering. And that's what makes our life very sacred. Do you understand what I'm saying? The sacred presence of God that can be so easily grieved by philosophy and, and, and some kinds of music and, and some kinds of things that we see on TV and on the internet. The, the Spirit of God can be easily grieved. But we, we, when we live in a renewing of our minds in Ephesians 4.23, we begin to look at our life like, you know, there's something very special about this place. And I'm just going to end with this. When I first came here, the first time I came to this little church, um, you know, Pastor Hoppy was here and Peg and, and just a bunch of folks. And, it, and by sight, it did not look a lot. And... Pastor Tony and his wife were already visiting here a lot from their ministry in downtown Philly. And I came here and I thought, you know, and we were offered, you know, would you take this church over? And we thought, wow, there's a lot of work here to be done. There's a lot of things that need to happen. And, and, and just different things were happening. And I thought, you know, I don't know God. And I just got really quiet before God. And God just said to me, I'm in the midst of it. I'm in the middle of this. 
And it'd be very easy for you, Chris, to pass over this by looking at it from, the, from Uzzah's perspective. And I just, I, I, God just showed something to me that this is a very special place. I don't know what God's going to do in the future, but I just have this sense of something wonderful is happening and is going to happen. And there, God is in the midst of this place. And I don't know what that means, if it's going to be, what it's going to grow into, or, or I know lives are going to be changed, and people are going to meet God, and, that, and things are going to awesome, things are going to happen in people's lives. But that's the very, the very precious thing about Jesus Christ in the midst, and this is Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is in the midst of his candlesticks, or his churches, in Revelation chapter 3. He's in the midst of us. And when we sing, and, and I love how Diana and Eddie lead us in this, like we honor the presence, we're worshiping Christ, and we are doing it by faith. And when we're taking the offering, Carl prays for the offering, we're, we're just giving by faith, and it's a sacred thing. And when, you're, when we're dealing with each other, and sometimes there are dysfunctions and our abnormalities as individuals that are sinners saved by grace, we do it in a very sacred way that, you know, this, pres- this person is very, very precious. With, all of, with the package of everything in their life, they're very precious. And something very beautiful is in their life, and that's Jesus Christ. And when we live that way, we'll never, we're never going to be guilty of familiarity. Because familiarity always leads to compromise. Well, familiarity goes like this. Familiarity, sentimentality. Third step is compromise. The next step is tolerance of things that we would have never tolerated before. And after tolerance is departure or error. And so I'll say that again. Familiarity leads to, what did I say, sentimentality, right? We become sentimental like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to just move back to Egypt because that's where I'm from. And I just feel like I feel the power pulling me back to Egypt, (laughs) That's sentimentality, not making decisions on truth, but making decisions based on emotions. Sentimentality leads to what? Compromise, right? We begin to compromise what God's will is in our life, and we say, well, I don't know, maybe I'm not going to do that. And we would compromise, and compromise leads to what? Tolerating things, things that I never tolerated before, you know? And then lastly, we, we just we find ourselves, we're, we're like on another road going in another direction. You ever find yourself traveling in the Bucks County? I'm learning Bucks County. It's just vast country here. Just, you could be on, I, I'm on my way to Virginia the other day. I thought I was in Bucks County. I'm like, where am I? <laughs> Not Virginia. But I was like, I was lost. I'm driving around thinking, you know, one sign every like 40 miles. Not that bad. That's, that's Maine, actually. And, you know, it's so easy to get lost because familiarity is always the first step. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this precious church, for our precious lives. Lord, for the great work in our life. And like the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he that has begun a good work, that's the way we get to look at God's plan in our life. It's a good work. We're moving. That's a good work. We are we're going to work. That's a good work. We are growing in our marriages. That's a good work. We're learning how to be parents, godly parents. That's a good work. Faithful is he who has begun a good work in you, who will be faithful to complete it. 
So Lord, help us not to get discouraged with how you're using us in other people's lives. And help us, Lord, to walk in just the fear of the Lord and understanding that the Lord wants to bless his people. And he wants to bless you and I. So we want to make those decisions for Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it's no mistake you're here. It's no mistake that you're hearing this message because we believe that God has a purpose in everything. Just pray this prayer privately in your heart and say, Dear Jesus, come into my life. Save me. I want to believe on you by faith. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and make me a new creation. I want to take you up, God, on the new offer of a new life and a new creation. And I want to take those steps and grow into this awesome experience of new life with Christ. And if you're praying that prayer this morning, then just know this. Christ is coming into your life and all he needs is an invitation. And when he comes in, everything begins to change for the better. Lord, we just pray that you take these words that we shared this morning, bring them into our heart of reality, and bless all of those that are listening to these messages and online and here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.